Turn in your Bibles, if you will, to Ephesians chapter 5 as we uh, continue to work our way through this amazing part of God's Word. I was prompted by an article I read a couple of weeks ago to... Uh, I thought I had a copy at the house, but I didn't. Washington Irving's short story about an old man named Rip Van Winkle. You remember that story? So, Rip Van Winkle, this story was published... Uh, Back in the 18th century, and it's a story really set in America before the Revolution. Rip Van Winkle lived in the Catskill Mountains of New York, part of the Appalachian Mountain Range. And the story, of course, is... Are you really? No, you're not. Because of the way you sleep, right? Yeah. By the way, if you sit near Ben, just keep punching him, Okay. Ryan, that's your obligation. If you see Ben bend over, he ain't praying. I'm just telling you. I've known him long enough to know that. He is not praying. So Ben Wilson's great-great-great-great-great-grandfather, the story goes he was hanging out with some wrong people. He had a wife that was just incredibly difficult to live with. That'd be my best way of paraphrasing. She nagged incessantly. All right. That's what the story is. And so to get away from his wife, he would go out in the woods with his dog named Wolf, take his rifle with him and just sit down and, you know, sit. Um, Some might call him lazy. I like to call him laid back. But of course, Rip Van Winkle went out in those woods. He, He he, he met some guys out there in the woods that were drinking some things they probably shouldn't have been drinking in excess as they were, and he went to sleep. He fell asleep there. Of course, you know the story. He woke up 20 years later thinking that he'd just slept overnight. His beard was a foot longer than it had been when he fell asleep. His dog, of course, was gone. His rifle was just this rusted old shell that worms had eaten the stock of it. Everything was overgrown around him, and of course he walked into town, and nothing was the same. Everything was different. He swore his allegiance to King George, not knowing that there had been a revolution while he was asleep, and King George wasn't in charge anymore. Um, This article that I was reading said many of us could maybe feel like Rip Van Winkle when we look around us at the way our country and our culture has changed over the last 20 years. It really is incredible. Just to look around and, and recognize that um, you know things are not the way they used to be. This particular article pointed out the fact that many of us as Christians have been cocooned in our Sunday school classes, in our K-Love culture, and we've just kind of missed in some ways what's going on around us until it is so in our face that we are forced to deal with it. And unfortunately, we, we tend to not deal with it well. And so we just look around at us and we think things are weird. And the people around us look at us and think we are weird. <laughs> Right? That's what Rip Van Winkle ran up against there. And so the theme that we've been really concentrating on for a bit here as we've worked our way through the book of Ephesians is the unity and the purity of Christ's church. And and Paul wants us to remember that we are not who we once were if we are in Christ. 
And because we are not who we once were, our thinking should be different and our behavior should be different. And he wants us to reflect on who we are, but not to forget who we once were outside of Christ. Because that is so important to recognize in the grace and the mercy that JT just reminded us that we sung about. Because we are different people, the way Paul puts it in Ephesians 4.1, therefore walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. We've been called to God himself. By God, by his grace. He chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world, he tells us back in chapter 1, to be holy and blameless before him. It goes on to say that in love he predestined us for adoption as his children. Holy, blameless, sons and daughters of God, brothers and sisters together in Christ. We are new creatures in Christ, Paul would say later on in 2 Corinthians. So this picture of being different means that we are called to live in a manner, we are to behave differently. We're to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which we've been called. So wake up, Rip. Wake up, church. You don't need me to tell you that as we look around, but how... What is it that we're to, how do we respond to this world around us? What is walking worthy of the calling with which we've been called look like? Well, follow along with me in the text. Let's start in chapter 5 of Ephesians, and I'm going to start in verse 1. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. That therefore looks back to chapter 4. Where we were told, well, we, I'm not going to go back and read the whole thing, but just the immediate context is, let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. And then it says in verse 22, that we're to be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as Christ, as God in Christ has forgiven you. So this context of forgiveness is leading into being an imitator of God as beloved children. Verse 2, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness or foolish talk or crude joking which are out of place. But instead, let there be thanksgiving, for you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or is covetous, that is, an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of God in Christ. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not associate with them. And I'll go ahead and read, we'll we'll move into this next section next week, but starting there in verse 8. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful to even speak of the things that they do in secret. When anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. And therefore it says, Awake, O sleeper, and rise from the dead, 
and Christ will shine on you. Look carefully how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of time because the days are evil. Let's pray together. Lord, we know our days are evil and we recognize that even even any one of us in this room, Lord, whether we are in Christ or not, I believe we can look around us and see evil in its worst form when it's raising its ugly head. But, Lord, sometimes we've gotten dulled by our sleepiness. And what you call evil is not called that anymore. And, Lord, what you say is dark, sometimes we see is a little brighter than that. So, Father, sharpen our dulled senses today. Wake up our sleeping hearts and minds and uh, help us lord see how it is that you have called us as your children to walk to behave and to be different and i pray that in christ's name amen so as as we read through that text the first portion that we saw last week calls us it says to be imitators of god as beloved children we're to imitate god in his love for us this is love First John tells us not that we love God, but that he loved us and gave his son as the propitiation, the atoning sacrifice for our sin. This is that agape love. This is that self-giving goes on in the text to tell us that it's the sacrificing love that is exemplified in Christ. So we're to love like God and we're to love following the example of Christ, which Paul says there. He gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. So we're called as beloved children. We are loved and we're to love like our dad. We're to love like our father. And, the, and God has loved us with this sacrificial, self-giving love. And that's exemplified in his son who loved us and gave himself for us. And so this love fuels our love. This forgiveness that we see earlier in chapter 4 fuels our forgiveness because we forgive and love the way God loves and forgave us. And that is then offered up to him, it tells us, as a sacrifice, a fragrant offering. And, of course, we saw this last week. This is the picture of that sacrificial animal laid up on the altar and, and burned before God as a part of that Old Testament worship. And that aroma, the Old Testament tells us, was pleasing to God. It was accepted by him. And so our lives today are offered up as a fragrance, all right? They're offered up as an offering to God. And Paul tells us, as we saw last week, that for God, that's the aroma of salvation. And for others around us, though, it is the aroma of death. Two weeks ago, as we were, maybe three now, as we were starting this section, we were talking about the pollutants in the air around us, right? That that whether we recognize it or not, we're breathing in things that are unclean. And given enough time and given enough pollution, given enough of that stuff going in, it's not going to go well for us. And spiritually speaking, we saw then that that was the case. And how much more is it the case when we start thinking about the sexual culture in which we live? I honestly thought about wearing a gas mask and blinders and earplugs up here and just see what the response would be. The gas mask for those things that we breathe in and take in, the blinders, the, the, the eye, covering my eyes so we don't see anything and plugging our ears so we don't hear anything. Sometimes we think that's what we got to do to survive in a culture like this. 
I don't want to see it. I don't want to hear it. I don't want to taste it. I don't want to breathe it. So how do we be in this world but not of it, right? How do we live in this world and not breathe in, take in the culture around us? And, and Paul, when he's talking about loving God, forgiving others, being sacrificial and offering our lives up as a fragrant offering to him, then we're called not only to follow that example of God's love, but also to follow the example of God's purity, his holiness. And that's where we come to in this portion. And it's, the, it's this contrast, this self-giving, sacrificial love of Christ in contrasted to these behaviors and motivations and this heart passion that's in every human being of getting what I want, when I want it, and doing whatever I need to do to accomplish that. And this the sexual immorality that is actually more deeply rooted in covetousness, which is actually more deeply rooted than that, goes down to idolatry. So I want you to think about the fact that these commandments that we look to in the Old Testament, they're in the order they are for a reason. It starts with who God is and with the danger of idolatry and the danger of Esteeming and treasuring and loving anything more than him leads all the way down the list inevitably to even covetousness. And so they come in an order for a reason. And here Paul begins to give some very specifics, some, some specific actions that are behaviors of loving anyone in anything more than we do God. And these are behaviors that are symptomatic, fruit of, indicative of a heart that belongs either to God or to the world. And it's stark. It's, it couldn't be more clearer. I mentioned, I think last week, David Wells wrote a book. He wrote it almost 30 years ago where he's talking about the culture of the world around us. And he says, worldliness is that system of values in any given age which has as its center our fallen human perspective, which displaces God and his truth from the world and which makes sin look normal and righteousness look strange. 30 years ago that was written. <laughs> it gives great plausibility to what is morally wrong and for that reason makes what is wrong seem normal. Listen to this article that I read. It remains for each man and woman to walk through this sexual bombardment and determine for themselves what they see as tasteless or objectionable, entertaining or merely dull. No one can really calculate the effect this exposure, this sexual exposure, exposure is having on individuals and on minds. It is part and symptom of an error in which morals are widely held to be private and relative, in which pleasure is increasingly considered an almost constitutional right rather than a privilege, in which self-denial is increasingly seen as foolishness rather than virtue. It's the latest phase in a conflict, the article goes on to say, as old as Christianity itself, between eros, or erotic love, and agape, between the passionate love named for a pagan god and the spiritual love through which man imitates God. 
In the West, the tension between the two and the general confusion about the many facets of love leads to a kind of self-torment that might well appear symptomatic of insanity. Today, sex is no longer shocking. That was written as the cover story in Time magazine in 1964. January of 1964. That was the lead editorial article in Time magazine. 1964. Most of you weren't born then. All right? I was seven years old. To give you a little context there, just following the publishing of that article, in less than a month, the Beatles would land here in the United States. And one article I read said, and an outlet was provided for the hormonal enthusiasms of teenage girls everywhere. <laughs> the previous spring, Betty Friedman had published the feminine, the feminine mystique, giving voice to the frustration of middle-class housewives everywhere and kick-starting the second wave of feminism. And in much of the country, the pill, that's the birth control pill, by the way, was still only available to married women, but it had nonetheless become a symbol of new freewheeling sexuality. Listen to this. Five years later, Governor Ronald Reagan in the state of California would sign the first no-fault divorce law in our nation. It was said of that that with a stroke of his pen, California Governor Ronald Reagan wiped out the moral basis for marriage in America. Five years after the passage, no-fault divorce statutes were in 45 other states, and Ronald Reagan said it was the greatest mistake he ever made in his political life of signing that law. Here's the point. The pill, no-fault divorce, you start giving a little here and giving a little there, and soon the whole foundation is washed out. So what we see going on around us today here, guys, is like what Solomon said in the book of Ecclesiastes. There's really nothing new under the sun in some ways. And the culture in Ephesus, as Paul wrote these words, that sexual immorality was not even to be discussed, not even to be talked about among God's people, that was as immoral a culture in Paul's day as ours is today. Ours is just a little more digitized. It's a little more digitized. I used to not like to go in O'Neill's up here at the corner. The biggest reason I didn't like to go in there was like every other convenience store in town, stacked up on the rack there behind it, wrapped in cellophane, was all the porn available for the day. And I was just uncomfortable with that. I don't have to worry about that anymore, do I? Just pull out your phone, and it's there. So we're more digitized, but we are not any more lost or infatuated with our sexual nature as was Paul's culture in that day. So it's important that we recognize how relevant these words are. And that what was said in 1964, that's just crazy, you know. First it was the pill, then no-fault divorce. Carl Truman says in his book, First the pill, then no-fault divorce, and now gay marriage and the whole LGBTQ plus movement have made traditional sexual ethics looks either outmoded at best or hateful at worst. And that's true. 
What's at the root of this is something we discussed last week that I want to lay the foundation for. I don't know that I really need to spend a whole lot of time talking about sexual immorality. I think we all understand what it is. We're just numb to it. I don't know that we need to spend a whole lot of time talking about impurity. We live in it. But I'm still going to touch on it. All right. The Christian view of self, a biblical view of who we are in God's image, is really at the core of this. And I mentioned Truman's book. We talked about it this past week as we had our parenting conference there at Theresa. We as God's people, we as those who are in Christ, recognize that's who I am now, right? I am called to be holy and blameless. I am, through His grace, called to His to into his family as his child, as his son, and as his daughter. And so as we look at this, we need to recognize that our refusal to identify ourselves the way God wants us to be identified is very, very important here. Listen to me, young person. Listen to what God says about who you are created in his image. And it is way more than your sexuality. It is way more than that. As a faithful people of God, we've got a hold to this message. So what is that? Imitate the purity of God. All right? Let's just look at this for just a second. It's a real stark reminder, not only of who we're called to be in Christ, but who we were before. All right? Please remember that. Go back to Ephesians chapter 2. And notice what Paul says there at the beginning. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. How does he describe that life outside of Christ? You were following the course of the world or the direction of the world. You were following the prince of the power of the air. We were following this demonic, satanic, Satan-led direction. The spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Notice this. Paul will not let us look out there and point a finger at these sons of disobedience. He won't let us point a finger at all of the letters until we first recognize this is who you once were. We all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. He says in chapter 4 and verse 17, You must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They're darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardness of the heart. So Paul, even as he is speaking to us bluntly in a way that may make some uncomfortable, as he's talking to us about this lifestyle that we're to avoid, he reminds us that outside of Christ we all walked in that. It might not have been as colorful as a rainbow flag, but it was just as dark in sin. That is who you once were outside of Christ. And beloved, listen, today, if you've never trusted in Jesus as your Lord and Savior, it might not be that color flag that you're flying. But outside of Christ, your heart is dark. And you're walking in the passions of your flesh. That passion may just be more economical. It may be more pointed in a direction other than sexuality, but you're just as lost. And Paul wants us to see that. Who are we in our core identity? We are children of the king on a journey to a home that is not here. 
And our highest good, our highest meaning in life, as we saw last week, is that image of God in us that through his grace in Christ has been recreated, reborn, given us a new heart and a new identity in Jesus. And what we have around us is a culture that is bought into a lie that's not new. Listen, Sigmund Freud, back in the early 1900s, is the father of what we call psychoanalysis, but he's also the father of what is called genital pleasure. That was his, that was his gospel. And, it's, and, and what he's talking about there is where our personal identity is equated to our sex and our sexuality. That was Freud's whole point. And we've bought it as a culture, hook, line, and sinker. Because that's now how we're identified, right? Or that's how the culture wants to identify us. And it's so prominent in our culture that we are, we are allowing people to be identified by sexual preference. And that's not who we are, basically, as human beings. And we have to recognize this context that we're in, church. For many people, that's the most prominent truth of their lives. And it's being taught to them from the youngest age. This is who you are. No, 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 no. Who you are is not about your sexuality. That's a part of who you are, but that's not who you are. You're created in the image of God, a fallen image by sin. And God, through Christ, offers to restore that image in you. And here's the message. Don't tolerate the world's definitions of love and fulfillment. Paul says there, sexual immorality, impurity, covetous must not even be named among you. Is he talking about there the nature of our conversations? Not in this verse he'll get to it. What he's talking about here is there shouldn't even be a hint of it. There shouldn't even be a hint of this sexual immorality. The word is pornea. It's where we get the word pornography. You want the broad definition of it? It's sexuality outside of God's covenant purposes for a man and a woman. Anything sexual in nature outside of that covenant relationship between a man and a woman is what we would categorize here biblically as this sexual immorality. It's this, it's this perverted love-slash-lust that the world has, these behaviors and motivations that our world celebrates. Do you see the steps in this process like Truman points out, first the pill, then no-fault divorce. Then, not long after that, comes Roe v. Wade. Then go on down the road a little ways further, and then there's the decisions before the Supreme Court about homosexual marriage. I mean, nobody should be surprised where we are today. Because that's just the process. And so, anytime we begin to build our identity on anything other than God... And his love and his care. So he says, don't tolerate these worlds defini- the world's definitions of love and self-fulfillment. That sexual immorality, anything outside of the covenant relationship between a man and a woman, that's not God's standard. That's not God's truth. Impurity. This impurity is just that general discussion of, of, of what is Unclean, unholy, what is not acceptable before God. This idea of covetousness and greed. And in the context here, it refers to coveting and wanting somebody, someone else, or someone else's body. 
or someone else's identity. You see how it's tied there? Before it ever gets in the bed, it starts in the heart. And so this this sexual immorality, this impurity, this covetousness, greed. Paul says there must not be none of this discussed, literally named. Here's what one author said. While Paul always demanded that Christians call sin by their names, however loathsome they were, he regarded extended conversations about such sexual sins as dangerous to spiritual health. Too much discussion of this kind of evil often functions like an incantation, bringing the very thing we say we despise into our lives. So our words can open the window of our heart so others can see what's there. But words can also open the door to our hearts so other things start coming in. And there's danger in that. It's out of place. It's not proper, Paul says. What's he mean by that? Here's what he means, I believe. Do you not know that you are God's temple and God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. But God's temple is holy and you are that temple. He says later on in 1 Corinthians 6 that and he, and he gives this he gives us this understanding that I think is so important about how how the sin of sexual immorality while it is not any more sinful than other sins, it does have deeper penetrating consequences in many ways. Because he talks about the connection physically and then emotionally between two people. He says, do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit within you whom you have from God? You are not your own. You're bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Because sexual immorality is committed with the body and there's a dimension to it that's different. But that's what Paul is saying here. Our bodies are holy temples. And just like we would not want someone to come in here and dump a load of manure right here in front of the communion table. So is the case with our bodies. It's improper. It's out of place. It's inappropriate. He says in regard to this sexual immorality. You know what? You know, Susan and I are beekeepers. We're a little different in that bee stings don't seem to bother me quite as bad as they do her. Over time, I guess I've become a little more used to it, you know. I mean, it, it does hurt still, but it, it doesn't cause some of the issues that bee stings do in some people. And they say the more you get stung, the more used to it you get. The sting of sin is that way. First time it hurts. Might even swell up, might even respond. But over time, that sting keeps coming, and then we just get numb to it. Maybe you don't even notice it anymore. The sexual culture around us, the sexual immorality, our understanding that anything outside of the covenant relationship between a man and a woman is out of bounds according to God. It's out of bounds according to his word. And, and we miss that. And so here's the danger with the bee stings. These small little compromises we make one step at a time begin to build up. And before you know it, like water in the foundation of a house, it just begins to eke away at it. And before long, it's weak and it falls. Sexual immorality, impurity, covetousness, and greed should not even be a, a part of who we are. The writer of Proverbs says this, don't enter the path of the wicked and do not walk in the way of the evil. Avoid it. 
Do not go on it. Turn away from it. Pass on. Like, don't see how close to the line you can get. And listen, guys, students, I know that this message is going to seem so weird to you. Because it is not what you will hear from many of your friends. It is not what you will hear from many of your teachers. It is not at all what you're going to hear from the culture. It is not at all what you're going to hear sometimes from your own heart. But it is God's truth. Listen to it. Listen to it. Take seriously what God takes seriously. Secondly, don't take lightly what God takes seriously. It says, let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place. Again, think about that holy place. What's inappropriate there? What should not be there? But instead, let there be thanksgiving. And what Paul is saying here is the subject and the content of our conversations matter greatly to God. He's saying that what we talk about, what we find funny, what we find amusing is either appropriate or inappropriate within the family of God. And in place of these self-centered passions and pursuits that are categorized by sexual immorality, this God-centered gratitude and contentment should rule our hearts. One writer said contentment is our greatest defense against this immorality. Contentment. Be thankful. Earlier, Paul said, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such is good for building up as fits the occasion that me may give grace to those who hear. John Stott puts this whole discussion in the context of, of the sexual relationship between a man and a woman. In fact, John Stott heads his section of his commentary about this part of Ephesians this way. He says, don't joke about sex, rather be thankful for it. That's how, he, that's how he puts this. And I think he's accurate in one regard. Because the whole context of this is we should remember that God made us as a part of being in the image of God in some mysterious way. A part of that is our, is our sexual being. Now, the God's purposes for that are clear in the Scripture. Yes, it is for pleasure, but it is for procreation, for godly offspring. We are called to be fruitful and multiply. And God's provision for that and the gift of that. One writer said, we are made to be lusty creatures. But man, we get off the reservation when we start down that path. What turns out to be improper in our speech can begin to fuel what is ungodly in our hearts. And these impurities of our speech, these impurities of our humor, these impurities within our thoughts and entertainment begin to feed the power of our sin, okay? And Paul says in Colossians 1, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of saints in the light. He's delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved Son in whom we have redemption. So he's telling us there, be thankful, be content, be, be satisfied with what it is God has given us. That special gift, that, that amazing gift within our spouses. And outside of that, it's, it's not that it's bad. It's just not yet. It's just not yet. Not the way the world would say that. Be content. Jason mentioned this in our discussion Thursday night at the parenting conference. He, he referred to this crazy culture around us this whole lgbtq plus and that plus you know is just for the extra letters and make no mistake there'll be more there'll be more 
But rooted in that, rooted in that, I love what Rosaria Butterfield says about this. And Jason mentioned this on Thursday night. I had read the article. In talking about transgenderism and all of that that's going on around us, Butterfield says that it's rooted in envy. It's rooted in covetousness. Really, it's rooted in idolatry. Butterfield says, transgenderism is at its root sinful envy of the sexual anatomy of another. Envy, biblically speaking, is an obsession, a driving passion that insatiably drives a person to desire another's gifts, possessions, achievement, or even sexual anatomy. As I mentioned a minute ago, there's the reason the Ten Commandments come in order as they do. And not having any gods before God includes understanding that our identity goes far beyond our sexuality. I'm created in God's image. And that image of God in me as a human being goes way, way beyond my sexual identity. So we recognize that gift that he gives us. Look at number three. In your outline, don't dismiss the behaviors that bring the wrath of God and recognize the root cause is something I added to that. I I, I should have changed this even in the sermon notes because I recognize that when I say don't dismiss these behaviors, what behaviors? Well, the list goes on and on and on. But if we focus too closely on just the behavior, we miss the root. We miss the root cause. And that root cause is covetousness. Paul says it's idolatry. He says, you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Well, just reflecting back what we've seen already, that we were all sons and daughters of disobedience at one point in time. But God in his grace and mercy reached up and rescued us out of that. And now we belong to him. We were enslaved to the sin of idolatry. Of covetousness. Of wanting that which is not ours. And he says, don't dismiss the behaviors that grow out of that root. The root causes that idolatry. Remember last week our definition of sin? Yeah, it is breaking God's laws, but it's also more fundamental than that, claiming any identity or security that's anything or anything else, anything beyond God. It's idolatry. We're living in a culture of idolaters who see their identity as sexual. And we have to guard against being caught up into that as God's people. That's why John, at the end of his letter in 1 John chapter 5, 21, seemingly it just comes out of nowhere like, John, where'd that come from? He says, little children, keep yourself from idols. That's his last word in 1 John. Keep yourself from idols. When we take anything that's good and make it the ultimate thing, more fundamental to our identity than God himself is, that's sin. And Paul says, of this you can be certain. God's wrath is coming against idolatry. And that idolatry is manifesting itself. And what first was kind of off limits and then was tolerated and then legalized and now celebrated. And if you don't celebrate it, you're seen as unloving and uncaring. And that's who we are, church. That's, that's how we're going to be classified by the culture around us. 
And God's judgment on this is certain. It is clear. Turn over the book of Revelation. Let me just remind you what we saw when we were working our way through the book of Revelation. Chapter 18. Says there in verse 2, this angel coming down out of heaven, great authority, mighty, probably awesome to look at. And this is what that angel announced. Fallen, fallen is Babylon the Great. What is Babylon the Great? It's this world. It's this world system. She's become a dwelling place for demons, a haunt for every unclean spirit, for every unclean bird, for every unclean and detestable beast. Verse 3 says, The nations have drunk the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality, and the kings of the earth have committed immorality with her, and the merchants of the earth have grown rich from the power of her luxurious living. That's what's coming into this immoral, Christless world. But listen to the warning that comes in verse 4. I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, lest you take part in her sins, lest you share in her plagues. That's the warning. And Paul will go on to say, don't associate with what is darkness. You are not darkness, church. You are light. Walk in the light. And that's that. It's, it's a clear warning that's given to us there. So we'll, we'll get more into that. I want to give you four points of application as we kind of wrap this up, okay? And there's going to be four words. You can just jot these down in your notes and listen to me. The first word is remember. The next one is recognized, the third one is ruthless, and the fourth one is rescue. It's brought to you by the letter R today. Remember, recognize, ruthless, and rescue. First, remember who you are and whose you are. All right? Called before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless. Chosen to be sons and daughters. Set apart for the temple of the Holy Spirit called to walk worthy of that calling. I know I quote him a lot, but I cannot think of anyone who has more closely got his finger on the pulse of the culture around us like now than Carl Truman does. Get his books and read them. Here's what he says when we're talking about our identity and remembering who we are. To retain an identity in the face of a hostile culture, one must belong, Truman says, to a vibrant community of people who know who they are. This is the New Testament pattern of Christianity. When we hear in clear and unequivocal words who we are declared to us in the sermon each week, and when we participate in the liturgical action embodied in that identity, that means the worship, we are well prepared for the hostile liturgies and gospels of the world we encounter from Monday to Saturday. And we have confidence in who we are in Christ. We have that confidence together within the community. Remember that. That's who we are. Secondly, recognition. Recognize what's going on in the world around us. And, and, and listen, the behavior is important. These behaviors are not only criticized by Paul. That's not even the accurate word. They are condemned by God. Make no mistake about that. Homosexuality, transgenderism, all of those things we want to classify in that, that is, that will face the wrath of God one day. And I believe, as Paul says in Romans, we're facing that God's, God's wrath today even as it's being poured out. As he continues to give us over to the decisions we make as fallen human beings. 
and tasting the consequences of that. That is the wrath of God, but not anything like it will be seen ultimately one day. So recognize. I asked Susan this morning, I've been thinking about this some this week. What was it like for Lot in Sodom and Gomorrah? What do you reckon Lot's life was like in Sodom? Here's my struggle. Just listen to this. Here's what Peter says in 2 Peter 2. And he's talking about God making an example from Sodom and Gomorrah. If by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what's going to happen to the ungodly. And in verse 7 he says, If he rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked... For as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds, and he saw that he saw and heard. Peter says that Lot was righteous, which I believe he was, and that he was greatly distressed. Here's my struggle with that. In Genesis 19:16, it says that Lot lingered in Sodom, and the angels had to literally drag him out. Didn't seem too distressed in some ways. So here's what I think happened maybe with Lot, and it comes from those great theologians, Pink Floyd, who said, we've become comfortably numb, comfortably numb. We need to recognize that, church. We've, I fear, become comfortably numb with the sexual environment in which we live. We've become comfortably numb with heterosexual immorality. So immorality outside of heterosexuality seems to trip our trigger. When it's no big deal anymore that a man leaves his wife for another woman. We just get our hair all raised up when a man leaves his wife for another man. Explain the difference in the immorality to that. We've become comfortably numb with being loud and proud in our opposition to LGBTQ plus when we become mysteriously quiet about heterosexual immorality. Don't we can't do that. We become comfortably numb with sexual conversation and comedy. When Paul says it shouldn't even be named with us. We become comfortably numb with a cultural direction that started first with toleration and it was like an ebb and flow in a boat. And the next thing you know, it's no longer ebbing and flowing. It is rushing downstream quickly toward total sexual, total sexual rebellion of what God's intended purposes are. And not just that sexual rebellion, but cancellation of anything that opposes that. We understand that, right? And like I said in 1964, today sex is no longer shocking. Guess what? <laughs> it's still no longer shocking. We become comfortably numb with sexual immorality in our public figures, our elected officials. We become comfortably numb with sexual immorality in our neighborhood and all around us. We're drinking the Kool-Aid, church. We've got to wake up. We've got to wake up, recognize the reality of that. Third word is ruthless. 
kill these sins in our lives or they will kill you and your family. You've got to be ruthless with this. Come out of her, my people, is what the angel said in Revelation 18, lest you take part in her sins, lest you share in her plagues. Ruthlessness means we come before God through his word, and then we confess that to brothers and sisters in Christ. We repent of it. It recognizes the importance of community. Community is a part of how we peacefully and lovingly fight like crazy against sin. I'm telling you, church. One writer said we have to fight like hell against hell. Our hell's going to take up residence in our hearts. And that's true in this battle against sexual immorality. One writer said, if we are with Christian brothers and sisters, and I know I'm about to stomp on some toes, even my own, but listen to this. If we are with Christian brothers and sisters whose movie, music, and television habits have been unexamined, we may need to stir up the love and encourage the questions about whether or not the Bible or the culture is guiding their lives. We should be willing to be thought of as odd for the sake of Christ. For if we cannot stand for our convictions among Christians, it is unlikely we will be a witness to the world. We become comfortably numb. Instead, we need to be ruthless. And then finally, rescue. I asked Jason to read Jude for a reason. I hope you'll go back and read that short book. You know, you can, go, you can go home today and say, man, we read through a whole chapter of the Bible today at church. And we did. We read through the whole book, rather, of Jude. And Jude uses the word godless over and over and over and over and over. He uses it five times in like three verses there. But here's how the book of Jude ends. Listen, church. Have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. Our, our rescue mission in this fallen, sin-sick world is one of mercy. We have to remember that, church. It's one of mercy. It's one of mercy. And it's, and it's difficult because we have to reach into the fire and yet, at the same time, guard our hearts. And, and all I can tell you is that only through your community of faith, your time in the Word, being clothed in the full armor of God that we'll see at the end of Ephesians, I'm telling you, this isn't for the weak, but someone, we as God's people, are called to it. Do we love those flying that rainbow flag? Enough to offer them the only hope? That can be found in Christ? Or are we going to say, they made that bed, let them just lay in the stinking thing? No. No. God calls out sin, He demands repentance, but He calls His people to be a people of grace and forgiveness because we have received grace and forgiveness. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you. I thank you for your word today. Father, I pray that every ear, mine, every one of us will hear this, this truth. That the siren call of the culture around us would be drowned out by the sound of the angels singing and declaring your holiness. And help us walk in the light of that, Father, I pray in Christ's name. Amen.